You are listening to iRadio TT online all the time. Welcome to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. The podcast series featuring news, interviews and analysis of all the music from the islands. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Music Matters. The Caribbean edition. I am Laura Dowridge-Phillips. And I am Nigel Campbell. And once again, we're talking about the business of music here in the Caribbean. Yes, we are, Nigel. Yes, we are. Welcome back again to our listeners for another informative discussion. And this time, Nigel, you took the lead on this one because, you know, I have been very busy. So you held only four this time around. So tell us who... You spoke to this week. It was a first for me to hold on. You thought it was difficult. I realize I'm not a professional interviewer, but that's a, that's another story. But um, I spoke with Professor Mike Aline. He's a professor of the of the business of music at Middle Tennessee State. He's a professor emeritus, actually. He's a Bajan, born in London, but now he's back in Barbados, living there once again. And he and I spoke about the the commercialization of Caribbean music. He has he's been writing academic papers and he's been studying it about how the west let's just say it like that how they commercialize caribbean music he's written books and writings on bob marley and how bob marley's music was sold and what they had to do to sell his music as well as rihanna he's done some serious work on rihanna and something that you would like he's also a really good author he wrote a book called the encyclopedia of reggae but famously he's a kind of academic expert on prince he's held a conference on prince Ooh. <laughs> yes, as well as Jimi Hendrix, but he's done this thing on Prince and he's just recently put out a book about Prince and, and that recognition of what Prince's value is and what he's done in terms of his career, which is really, really cool. And you'll hear all of that in the, in the, in the, um, in our interview. But famously, I mean, Angelite here, Laura, it was like two nerds because I'm a nerd when it comes to that kind of detailed information. So needless to say, I just prefer this one to some questions. So you'll notice, ladies and gentlemen, and Laura, that um, you'll hear a two-minute question by me and a three-minute answer, I think. So we have these long questions back and forth. Well, Nigel, I'm sold. Anybody who writes about Prince is mm. already my fave, and I cannot wait, wait to hear this conversation. So guys, enjoy the discussion. Enjoy, and here it is. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. Um, in our conversations about the business of music here in the Caribbean, we try to get the perspective of persons, obviously, in the region, but critically, voices that exist and live and, ex- and exist commercially and otherwise outside, right? And one of our guests this evening, I think, is eminently qualified. His name is Professor Mike Aline. He's Professor Emeritus at Middle Tennessee State University in the Department of the Recording Industry, author of many books on music, on Prince, on Jimi Hendrix, of course, the Encyclopedia of Reggae. But critically for me, one of the things he had done, I think may have been like in the early 2000s, he wrote some articles about the globalization and how Caribbean music is sold to markets outside of outside of Jamaica, outside of the Caribbean altogether. And certainly we'd like to have a conversation with Professor Aline about that. Can I call you Mike, by the way? Yeah, but of course. Wonderful. <laughs> So, good evening, Mike. Um, I'm going to ask you this. Are you born in, I know you're born in London. Are you a Bajan heritage? Yes, that's right. Okay. Both, both parents, Bajan. Okay, right. Let's just start with that one time because it's one of those things, as I said, that we have, we've been discussing on our show 
But critically, I think a number of Caribbean governments have also been tackling with this thing about how do we sell our music in the sense that Caribbean governments have gotten involved in the, the energizing of the music industry as part of that export diversification beyond tourism. And there was a great example of the what we call the Rihanna effect. You know, they put some money, some foreigners came down, they plucked Rihanna out of obscurity, and now she's one of the biggest stars in the planet. And we do know that some other Bajan artists were put into that, that whole space. But part and parcel of the what the research that you had did, if I remember it clearly, was that we have to kind of modify the way we sell ourselves. And that is not necessarily controlled by us. So let's have a conversation. Mike, tell me about that. Tell me, tell me the exact name of the paper and the year that paper came out, the globalization and how we sell Caribbean music. I know I'm, I'm massacring uh, yeah. the cover. Well, there was a, in 2009, a paper called Globalization and Commercialization of Caribbean Music. Mm, that's and right. that tried to provide some kind of historical overview. Mm-hmm of uh, the process going uh, decades back. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that it pointed out, and I discussed this in my doctoral dissertation, was the way that uh, Lovey's Trinidad String Band had been recording for RCA. Uh, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> back in 1912 or, or maybe a little earlier. 1912, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... When we think about the industry and its historical development, we really need to think in holistic terms about this and that this is not a new thing. Mm. And Mm. I suspect that in too many cases, uh, particularly perhaps at organizational level, there's a lack of awareness Mm -hmm. uh, of the, the degree of historicity associated with this process of selling the music to other audiences. Mm-hmm. This has been going on from the beginning. So um, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you, you mentioned um, Lavi's String Band because I, I, in our recent conversations, our recent correspondence, I noted um, that this German company called Bear Family had reproduced that, that early Lovey's, that Lovey's um, catalog. And then a couple of years later, they did the whole 1930s, 1940 um, Decca recordings as a nice big box set. But, if I'm understanding clearly, you're suggesting that the let's let's use the American industry for the for the for the purposes of a cover conversation now. They set what is supposed to be marketable. I'm asking this question because we have this big concern here in Trinidad about Calypso, as you are aware. And in 1957, of course, Belafonte brought out the famous record Calypso. And there was a little tizzik certainly here in Trinidad that he was not a Calypsonian and he admitted he wasn't a real Calypsonian. But at the same time, America said Calypso is Belafonte and Sparrow and Kitchen and everybody else. Yeah, we know you're the real thing, but we want our Calypso like that. So is it that foreign markets always dictate what native music is? Well, there's a, there's an argument for that point. Uh, mm. And by the way, I have, I'm not dodging the question about the Rihanna effect. We will come back to we that. We will come back to that, yes. We'll mm-hmm. expand on that. But uh, yes, the, the, the foreign markets have a way of dictating the shape and form of how audiences perceive and receive mm. some of the music, mainstream audiences. Now, we would like to think that we're in a slightly more enlightened time in the digital era, but mm. there's lots of evidence to the contrary. Mm. Uh, so uh, we we have to factor in the the ways in which the mainstream marketplace is going to remold and reshape 
the sound and the appearance of the artists and even the arc of their development in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way to completely separate oneself from that, but there is perhaps uh, a greater importance now to be placed on artistic authenticity and a sense of creative direction so that you mm. know what you're doing if mm. you're signed to a major label and what the objectives really are. And the importance is to find the middle ground between the creative value and the commercial value. Mm. And I think too often uh, things tilt too far one way or the other significantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the commercialization takes over and the uh, creative value becomes diluted. And I talked about this in uh, my 1998 paper, uh, Babylon Makes the Rules. That's the one. Yes, more specifically about uh, the the reggae apps. But uh, as uh, you've noted, that has a wider application to any uh, Caribbean genre of music that's being sold outside of the region, Mm -hmm. where when uh, larger corporate interests become uh, involved, then – and it's a very odd process because the paradox is they sign you for one reason – Exactly. When you're playing in a particular style, and mm-hmm. then they want to change that mm-hmm. in order to to sell the music to more people. Mm. Uh, so very problematic, and uh, it's uh, it's a conundrum from which uh, we are yet to emerge. Mm. You know, we we haven't actually got past that point, and I want to mention that you know we we tend to think about progress in the Caribbean music industry. Uh, taking place relative to time. You know, we're in the 21st century, therefore we have moved ahead. Mm-hmm. But when I looked at the Billboard Top 200 albums this last weekend, mm-hmm. the highest-ranked Caribbean artist was still Bob Marley and the Wailers. That, the Legend album. The Legend album, <laughs> exactly. released almost 40 years ago mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at number 144 on the charts. Yeah. So... How far have we actually come if this is where we still are? I, I, I'm, that is a question I keep asking myself. The, the idea of picking somebody for what you see. I know at present in the digital age, of course, now it's about before they sign you, they have to check your stats on social media. So if you're, if you're really popular in Trinidad and nowhere else, well, that'd be lucky for you. Would you have to have a kind of almost global popularity among all the social media? Um, companies and platforms. But I was thinking, as you mentioned, the Bob Marley record being, I'm thinking of an artist like Shaggy. Shaggy just recently put out an album of Frank Sinatra songs. He covered it, um, Fly Me to the Moon, I think it's called. And um, I'm surprised that that did not chart. I mean, I I, re- I write reviews for Caribbean Beat Magazine and actually reviewed the record. <laughs> right? It was a unique kind of record. But I'm surprised to hear that it, it didn't even chart, right? And that we're still operating almost on a kind of nostalgic node so that Arrow's Hot, Hot, Hot is still the most famous soca soca song. Although in Trinidad, we release soca songs literally every year. Brand new and abandoned what happened last year as it was, with a few exceptions. And Calypso similarly, so that the Caribbean still is in in a kind of, in in a kind of time warp. So that for a lot of Americans, even over a certain age and even younger journalists, when they, there was a journalist who came to Trinidad recently to cover an entrepreneur who was bottling new rum, a new brand of rum. 
And she's and she admitted. She said, "When I have, when I think of Calypso, I think of Harry Belafonte." This is a woman who's not even forty years old, or actually may not be fifty years old. And I'm thinking, what happened in the interim? Did we not learn anything? Did the market move ahead and we just stay there holding on to? Well, yeah, Belafonte put the word Calypso out into the the universe, yes. and we're happy for that. I mean, can you guide me? What what went wrong? Well, I argue that, uh, and I get you. I guess you get the sense of this from my writings mm-hmm. that we haven't really learned the commercialization lessons of the past. Mm-hmm. We are still stuck in a number of time warps. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Belafonte's uh, Calypso album, mm-hmm. released in 1956, 56, had yeah. this major impact because. It was the diluted form. And, and that's the irony that had, had it been uh, a true Calypso album, it would have been a harder sell. I wouldn't say it would be impossible to sell it. Mm-hmm. I would say that because it came out, we may never find out mm-hmm. whether, you know, it would have been possible for uh, an authentic Trinidad Calypsonian to have that kind of impact. Mm-hmm. So. We are really stuck in time. Another example to reflect that is that uh, you're aware the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had its recent uh, annual induction ceremony. A couple of days ago. Yes. And in conjunction with that, there were a series of articles published online in various publications. One of them was Polestar, the live music uh, magazine. Mm Mm-hmm. And they, within the past week, looking back at the industry, carried an article on Harry Belafonte, of all people. Wow. Uh, now, it's true that Belafonte exists in a, a kind of folk sphere as well as mm-hmm. uh, within a Calypso sphere. But the fact is that that was the person with mm-hmm. whom Calypso was still being associated in 2022. He made four albums with the word Calypso in it. Right over well, twelve years or something like that. If uh, you could, you could correct me on that. I'm, I'm a little lost for some of my numbers at, at present. Sorry about that. So he made these four albums in twelve years, and those four albums are all that Americans know about the word Calypso. Unfortunately, until probably Calypso breakdown by Ralph McDonald, the son of another Trinidad and Calypsonian musician living in New York, percussionist, right. rest in peace. But um. The, the the evolution of Calypso, which was soca music, came out in like the seventies. Actually, this year, tech, next year may technically be the fiftieth anniversary. Um, we've had a number of players, famously Marshall Montano, superstar, just sold out Barclays Center in Brooklyn. He was, I think, signed to Atlantic Records, and they, well, the the label saw him. They said, "Okay, we we like what you're doing," but they wanted him to do something, and he did not deliver that particular thing that they wanted. And um Kevin Little, who was also signed to Atlantic also, he he with his one song. I remember when in Trinidad thinking, Oh, there's a nice song, his voice sounds like he has auto-tune in his voice. And then I was up in the States and I heard it. I said, Hey, Kevin Little, no bit. And next thing you know, a, a year or two later, it's on the charts, number four on Billboard. Yes. With 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 a, a kind of cheesy he had a cheesy video with the the, the costumes. But I, I just it blew my mind because I know there's this idea of remixing or covering. So Arrow, Arrow was covered by um, Buster Point Dexter. Things yes. like in the mid levels and the in the Billboard pop charts. Um, of course, as I said, Kevin Little had a remix with Spraga Benz. Although a local DJ told me that Spraga Benz was in the original. I said maybe, but Spraga is more prominent in the second one. And famously, another one, we, the song was called Doggy and Trend that became Who Let the Dogs Out. These yes. guys won a Grammy. 
right? So there's this idea, I think, that we have, you talk about how do we sell ourselves. One suggestion I made controversially was probably just write a song and let somebody else cover it. Because our true selves are not accepted for one reason or the other outside. And there's one exception. And let me just give you this short example. Calypso Rose is a Calypso of many, many years, starting in the 60s. She's more than 80 years old. And a couple of years ago, she released an album and she had Manu Chow, very popular French artist, working with her. And a, a, a Frenchman who lives in Trent, I was preserved there. Um, he was part of the executive production team. And she won the, like, the major award in France, the, equi- the equivalent of a Grammy in France for that album. And I remember thinking, I said, I think our problem is we are trying to compete with pop and hip hop and Taylor Swift when we should really be concentrating on what is now called best global performance, but what was called world music. Admittedly, it's very niche. You may not, but the market may not be in North America. We live within the Americas. We could probably head towards Europe and, and Africa itself because a large percentage of people living in the Americas from Canada all the way down to Tierra del Fuego speak Spanish. So that when Bad Bunny opens his mouth and sings and, and Daddy Yankee and, and the Colombians and DR artists, a billion views on YouTube is a normal thing for them. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, well, probably we're doing this wrong. Probably we should really go niche. Am I wrong to think that niche is where we're supposed to go and what we can still compete because Mali, as you know, was, was removed, re- remo- was remixed by, um, Chris Blackwell. That first album with rock guitars and all that kind of stuff. To, to, Am I talking? You talk, please. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I have a lot to say about that. And in fact, let's talk. Uh, there is uh, a book that's going to be out within the next month that mm-hmm. I co-edited called Analyzing Recorded Music, mm-hmm. Collected Perspectives on Popular Music Tracks. Mm-hmm. And that includes a chapter on mm-hmm. Concrete Jungle, which was the first song on the first album mm-hmm. that uh, the Whalers released with Island Records in 1973, mm-hmm. the album that contained the rock guitars mm-hmm. and the uh, the rock keyboards that you're talking about. So that entire process is uh, unwrapped and unraveled in that chapter. Mm-hmm. In addition, uh, fortunately, I was able to get the studio track sheets from Universal Music, uh, which was not an easy thing, but mm-hmm. uh, they agreed to allow those to be published. So the, the it's not just talk about the chapter. You can actually look at the track sheet, see what was where, and see which overdubs were done in London. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's... The original tracks were cut in Jamaica, and of course there had been an earlier version of the song produced mm-hmm. by Lee Perry. Uh, but to enhance it for the marketplace, which mm-hmm. comes back to the process we're really dealing with here, mm-hmm. uh, decisions were made about how it should sound and how it should be mixed and how there should be less bass. Imagine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thinking about mm-hmm. There should be less bass in order to cross it over. So mm-hmm. some things haven't really changed very much. Uh, you were mentioning the issue of covering songs. Mm-hmm. And we should remember, too, that the first Bob Marley hit was Johnny Nash. Roberto McBelly would go over jelly? Is that one? Uh, stir it up, I oh, think. Stir it up. First. Okay. Stir right. it up came first. Uh, and you know, famously, should... Eric Clapton. I shot yes, the sheriff. Well, well, that that was the next thing. Mm-hmm. That was what brought Bob Marley's names to the ears uh, Bob Marley's name to the ears of the uh, white pop, Western mainstream rock market that had the impact. So suddenly people are saying, 
who is this guy, Bob Marley? People outside of the West Indian community mm. <laughs> are saying, who is this guy, Bob Marley, and why is Eric Clapton covering his music, and why haven't we heard more about him? You know, uh, there was a kind of uh, a developmental arc taking place before Bob Marley became a breakthrough artist. Mm -hmm. So the process that you're suggesting, uh, digging into the niche of mm -hmm. the marketplace may actually be a more progressive way to build in the longer term. Because at the moment, I think that there are too many artists who are chasing immediate gratification and sensation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that I think is the issue. And that is part of the Rihanna effect in the Caribbean, where you have lots of clones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking what you, you, as I said, the modern music industry, of course, is about likes and, 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 and views and that kind of stuff. And the, what the record labels do basically is provide marketing money to get it out to everybody and to get it on radio, which is, I understand is still a, an important amplifier of music in Sydney in America. And probably the UK also. I was, we, we spoke to Shawnee B a while ago in our podcast. But I think one of the things that stuck with me with the idea that, because you're suggesting that Rihanna is part of this modern, very modern music industry where they, it's about how you look more than how you sound. Yes. But as well, it's, it's, well, what sells? So she looks pretty. So we'll, we'll buy a record as opposed to, well, can't she sing? Do the songs have depth? Which I guess was a, it was a different era. I'm, I'm sure in my age here, but. I, I still suggest that there's something that's, I wouldn't say it's nefarious, there's something, I wouldn't say insidious, but it's a little, a little sinister in a sense that the Caribbean as a whole is viewed in a particular way in North America and I think in a particular way in the United Kingdom. I'm not sure about Europe, I'm not sure about Africa, I'm not sure about Asia, but we are a place to flee seriousness, to quote Derek Walcott's line, and and nothing really serious happens here. So it's a vacation. So all of Bob Marley singing conscious music and redemption song and that kind of stuff. He is an image that I wouldn't suggest is an outlier, but that early representation of what reggae was, was something that got, God bless Chris Blackwell for it. But everything after that, it's just about vibe and a mood as opposed to what the music is. Um, instant gratification. Yeah. But. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But you you tell me why you say it's not gratification. Well, you know, there's still a tendency for Caribbean acts to be viewed as seasonal novelties. Soca artists. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, with, <laughs> with, with material centered around uh, summer sales summer, or, yes. festivals mm. or lightweight lyrical themes, mm -hmm. as opposed to artists whose appeal uh, extends throughout the year and can incorporate... Uh, serious global social commentary as well. Mm. You know, unless the music comfortably fits into the broader uh, mainstream pop sphere, mm -hmm. it's unlikely to be taken seriously. And I think Europe is mm. guilty of this as well. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the Bajan artist before Rihanna with the biggest uh, hit in Europe was uh, Charles D. Lewis, mm. who in uh, 1990 had a single called Soca Dance.
1990, and, it, and it keeps getting, you know, it, it's second life occurs every year during the summer. Mm. What so, countries in Europe was that a hit? Uh, that was number one in France. It was being mm. in Germany and Austria. Wow. You know? And uh, and some of this is documented in a chapter uh, on a book about Rihanna that was published in 2015. Mm-hmm. But in that in that chapter, I was trying to provide background on the Bajan presence in the global market before mm-hmm. Rihanna, because people think that Rihanna was it the first. Yeah, suddenly Barbados emerged mm-hmm. with, with Rihanna, and mm-hmm. uh, there, there is a whole history uh, preceding that, including people like uh, Jimmy Haynes, who yes. was the producer of the Steel Pulse Babylon the ba- the Bandit album. Mm-hmm. That was a Grammy winning album, so he in fact won a Grammy as a Bajan before Rihanna. So, mm-hmm. long story, we can't really go down that road, but you you see where I'm going with this. Yes. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's just the idea that the Caribbean is still being uh, viewed in a particular way, and. I've argued in the same chapter to which I was referring, it's a chapter called uh, International Identity, Rihanna and the Barbados Music Industry. Mm-hmm. I argue that one of the crucial elements in Rihanna's pop success is, in fact, the relative scarcity of Caribbean specificity in her records. Mm. You know, so she's a pop artist first and a yeah. Caribbean icon second. Yeah, Umbrella, Ella, Ella had nothing that said Bajan. I have to say that Pondy Replay, that first single that she had, had a Caribbean feel. Yes. But the two music writers, the two American guys, let's say, the two white guys, who wrote a song that sounded Caribbean-ish, and they got this pretty Bajan girl to sing it, and it, it did some chart success. But um, you're correct. I mean, Umbrella was a breakout song that made her a global superstar. But it was years before you got Mandong and work and <laughs> that stuff right? that sounded like a little more Caribbean. This is it. And, and you know, if we take a, a clinical look, which I've been arguing not enough people have been doing mm. at the production teams and songwriters working on her albums, mm. we find, for example, there are a lot of uh, Scandinavian songwriters and production teams on those records. How yeah. do you extract Caribbean from that? Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that this would not be part of a commercial crossover formula. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. But if we be perceive the artist as somehow representing uh, Caribbean identity out there, then there's some reconciling to be done. And the numbers, the equation does not, does not add up. I hear you. As you say, but as you say, Scandinavian, I remember Childish Gambino had um, a couple of songs. He'd done a film with Rihanna self, right? I think he filmed it in Cuba. And there were a couple of singles that he had released. And you hang a pan and it sounds very islandish and that kind of stuff. But the musical bed was created by a Scandinavian. And he, um, Donald Glover, just put vocals and did a little, a little tweaking of the production of his vocals. So, as I said, there's something about the idea of sounding reggae-ish and sounding calypso-ish and sounding soca-ish that the Americans, for now, in this argument, have latched onto and they're good with that because that's what they're able to sell. Right. Um, nobody's going to try hard to sell something bigger. I mean, I don't want this conversation to drift too much into like film, but of course, before Black Panther, everybody said you can't sell a black film outside of America. That was an impossible thing. And then here comes Black Panther, which was not necessarily a, a top line Marvel superhero, but $1.3 billion globally. After that, everybody now wants to jump on board, but I don't know how much they can. Because it's $150 million to make Black Panther, nearly $200 million to market it. It ain't cheap. 
<laughs> and I'm just wondering, using that example, if money is a problem in how Caribbean music is marketed, do we have enough money? Our our music industry, I think, in the Caribbean is focused on the independent music system. Everybody yes. owns their own music. Nobody's a part of a, a multinational label, the, the three majors as it was. And even the, the few independent labels that we do have here are very small. I think, well, VP Records in New York, of course, is one. Um, what's his name? Protégé recently has a, a deal with a, a, a major label yeah, with his independent label. But uh, how money is a problem. How hard is it for even person to invest in the Caribbean music industry? Oh, it's, your it's, research. Well, the industry itself is always difficult. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to break in, even if you're an Amer- American act. So much True. harder if mm-hmm. you're coming from uh, what major markets would consider marginal territories mm-hmm. with marginal and marginal musical genre. Mm-hmm. So it's very tough to to get the market to accept the possibility of of commercial success mm-hmm. and a sustained career on that basis. Uh, and of course, this is where organizations and governments would theoretically come into the picture. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there has to be this balancing act where there's this uh, equation between business acumen and an understanding of the, the music business and the cultural implications. Mm. And rarely do we find those elements aligned in uh, Caribbean governmental organizations. I think that's true. Uh, so, yes, go ahead. No, no, you finish your thought and I'll just continue. Well, you know, I was coming back to this business of, of Rihanna once again, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, her success, as you pointed out, led to a gold rush. Mm-hmm. And the people behind the gold rush had the resources. Yeah, Mutang. And yet her commercial breakthrough did not really benefit Bajan acts or Caribbean acts on the whole. Mm. You know, in the book chapter that I've been talking about, I briefly chronicled the fate of the Bajan Act signed to production deals and major label uh, distribution in the wake of Rihanna's rise. None of them have maintained momentum for a variety of reasons. Only the group Cover Drive that had a brief uh, moment of uh, success in the UK with a number one single, Twilight, Mm -hmm. in I think it was 2012, had anything like comparable success. But they soon became disillusioned. They left the major label arena. I think they were with Polydor, uh, but ultimately they're still with Universal because most of those labels are now just boutique labels without the kind of identity they once had. And then they proceeded with uh, these low-profile independent releases, even though, remember, it was still the same group, the same mm-hmm. style of music, no mm-hmm. more success. And ultimately, the journey culminated in the band's disintegration without mm-hmm. being able to fulfill its potential. Now, there are a whole range of other acts that I'm, I talk about in that chapter. Uh, there's Chantel. Chantel, yes. Alinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Visa Chambers, all of them were connected with Universal Motown. Mm. Uh, Jayco, who was signed to Capital. Liffy Frank, signed to Jive Records. Where are they now? Well, some of them are actually doing reasonably well as songwriters, so we can't say that they've gone into oblivion. Mm. But in terms of being artists who we recognize and can really think about as having careers, that's mm-hmm. not really happening. So most of them even when they were signed, were on the commercial peripheries, mm-hmm. despite uh, all of the 
promising affiliations with the major labels. Now that that gold rush is over, mm. it's, it's now very difficult to accurately identify any Bajan acts that have major mm. label deals, apart from Rihanna herself. And that's it. Was was is, was a similar thing happening to Jam to Jamaica? I, I, admittedly, Mali broke in the seventies, and people knew about reggae and and reggae and Jamaica was identified with Bob Marley. They became almost synonymous. Um, but artists like Jimmy Cliff, Tootsie Metals, they maybe have come after. Of course, the English bands are Swad, Steel Pulse. But um, now that we have reggae got its own chart on Billboard magazine, they got their own Grammy at the at the Grammys. But they only sell like a couple hundred records and they have a number one record and yes. I, I, that still amazes me. But what, what do you think of you, you, the, the, the idea of that connection of a pioneer going out into the marketplace and making it and opening the door as it was and bringing in others? A, a, a famously, a, a person who had worked at South by Southwest told me, with a straight face, American guy, he said, but aren't all Caribbean artists one hit wonders? And I wanted to tell him, no, that's not true. I, I, Shaggy was my, my great example. I said, Shaggy doesn't have one hit. Sean Paul doesn't have one hit. He said, yeah, but Shaggy had a hit. It wasn't me. It was a hit. Everything after that may have been popular, but it wasn't a hit, right? I said, I'm not going to debate that, right? But it's the model, as I said, because I think critically for me, the question becomes about what is the model to have a sustained Caribbean presence, English-speaking Caribbean presence in terms of genre music, calypso, soca, dancehall, reggae, anything in between out there. What 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 needs to happen? It's a hard question. I mean, I think the the, the answer is that the model has to be remade for the twenty first century. That's mm-hmm. really it. Because now, as uh, you may have alluded to earlier, the emphasis on data. And, and stats and social mm-hmm. media visibility have changed the game significantly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I want to talk about streaming at some point, but we'll we will. Get... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but when we think about what happened with reggae, remember before Mali broke with the whalers, mm-hmm. you had, uh, Desmond Decker. You had Jimmy Cliff with, you know, transatlantic mm. hit singles. You had Johnny Nash doing his pop reggae yeah. that was a bit more diluted, but you know, mm. he was still getting the sound out there. And a lot of the early tracks had, were recorded in Jamaica mm-hmm. with the Jamaican rhythm section. So they still had a taste of the real authenticity there. Uh, so th- there was a kind of momentum that was built mm-hmm. so that when and remember uh, the Jimmy Cliff film, The Harder They Come. Harder They Come, yeah. And, and the soundtrack album had been out before mm. uh, Catch a Fire was released. Mm. Well, the album was actually released later in the US, but that's another story. Yeah. So, but the point is that th- there is a kind of momentum being built up. And then, as I point out in my uh, white reggae article, mm. uh, parallel with Marley's Rise, you're getting... Paul McCartney and Wings and the Eagles and then mm-hmm. later on 10 CC and then of course the police. Yeah, the police, yeah. Uh, Regatta you know, La Blanc. Exactly. <laughs> Literally white reggae. The white reggae. <laughs> yeah. So they're in the mainstream doing this thing and quite often not very well. And, you know, it's very diluted. And, you know, we talked about the Eric Clapton example as well. But the fact is that those things contributed to opening the doors at radio and uh, bringing other audiences to the music because some of the people who heard these things wanted to get closer to the quote-unquote real thing. Mm. And there was uh, more of, uh, 
potential for the actual artists to reach new audiences. Now, where we are in this era is very problematic because there are, I would argue, too many crossover collaborations with DJs and hip hop artists. So how do you determine, uh, how do you create something that is distinctive enough mm-hmm. and commercial enough under those conditions? I remember dancehall artists, Bonti Killer and Swiss Beats and some of the artists were doing that kind of, as you say, I think Beanie Man was with some others, the, the kind of dancehall hip hop crossover as it was. Um, and they had BET celebrating it, um, in America, certainly. So there may have been an actual platform for getting the music out there. How successful, how sustainable it was. Well, you know, the data as it was, wasn't very, it was a fad. You have this faddishness that continues in our popular music. Um, one of the things that we had tried kind of in parallel to that idea of collaborating with hip hop artists that was kind of semi successful, certainly in, um, with some of the dancehall artists was that we had soca artists, a few soca artists were able to do that collaboration thing. Marshall Montano was a superstar. Let's not pretend. And he has done collaborations with everybody, hip hop artists, EDM artists, uh, major laser famously, um, a rock artist. Everything had been tried because one of the things that we have always wanted to do, certainly in Trinidad, is to get soca to a position like where dancehall was, right? Calypso may have been older than reggae and it had its prominence. But as I said, as you've, as we've already discussed, you say Calypso in America, they say Belafonte. You say Soka in America, they say Arrow, right? So that uh, even Kevin Little. So the idea that Trinidad is a creation, the, the land of the birth of, of these two um, genres, it kind of, it kind of hurts a little bit, right? So as I said, we've tried the collaboration route and I'm not sure how successful it has been. I mean, for Marshall celebrated his 40th anniversary in the music industry this year. And he's collaborated with about hundreds of artists from Boyz to Men, Ariana Grande and, and, um, what's his name? And Major Lazer. And of course, uh, Collie Buds and a number of Beanie Man and Shaggy and all these, um, dancehall artists and then, and the songs are popular in Trinidad. Something that you've also said is it's always seasonal music. It's literally carnival music. The music may not say the word carnival. But in the minds of the of the market, I don't know if it's indelibly, you just hear this music, you only think of one thing. It becomes a mood and activity music, as somebody had suggested, and not music for the point of view that I wrote a great lyric about politics and third world. Yes. Uh, I, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. But um, there's something that also I think had happened in that, and this is going back even back to the days of Marley and certainly Peter Tosh and the Whalers, that... Um, some rock artists, uh, the number of artists had gone to Jamaica to record to get that vibe. I think Paul, Paul Simon recorded, um, Mother and Child, Mother Reunion. And Child Reunion down there. Of course, as I said, I know Keith Richard and probably Jagger himself recorded in Jamaica. And, um, yeah. and, but, and the Caribbean space, of course, that's a whole other story. Bahamas and Barbados with Eddie Grant and Compass Point in Bahamas and, and, and of course, Air in Montserrat. But, yes. The idea of the kind of fashionable thing about, hey, I'm hanging out with, um, with Peter Tosh, just Keith Richard. And, and they asked John Lennon, I famously remember this. John Lennon, in the interview, they said, what's your hot new music now? And he said, reggae. I think reggae is going to be the hot new thing. He met Peter Tosh or something like that. So there's a kind of faddishness. And I'm not sure. Again, I don't want to be the harbinger of bad news and be the sour person in this conversation. But I, I get the impression that 
our business model is a tie to things, as you call it, instant gratification, but a kind of long-term um, connectedness to a fantasy as opposed to let's get real. I keep holding, coming back to Calypso Rose because she sold, I think, half a million records in in France or 100,000. I think there's a number that gets you to platinum in France, which is much less than in America. Yes. But she but she sold she sold a large number. She done tours, and then she won this award. And I'm thinking, why are we going that direction? Why are we still trying to make it in in New York and in LA? I, I, I do I, help me understand what what's happening as we're going forward in the music because now music is now we're now in the era of streaming as opposed to the era of selling records. How do we evolve our music industries? Hard, large question, long sentence. Please forgive me. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult question to answer. And, uh, you know, every time I think of, uh, mainstream soca artists like, uh, well, Michelle Montano, mm. I always think of David Rudder as a kind of an antithesis. It's not that the music isn't commercial, mm-hmm. but if we think of, the authenticity of the artist and a connection to the art form. The lyricist par excellence. Well, there you go. So Mm. he is in his own niche and we don't, we have expectations of particular artists. We don't expect him at this point to be doing some kind of hip hop crossover. That would be (laughs) completely out of character. Yeah. That's not his thing. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so that that's almost in some ways parallel to the Calypso Rose situation, even though, you mm-hmm. know, Rudder's not had the same kind of sales figures mm-hmm. uh, in in recent years. Yeah, I believe but, he was actually signed to, to one of those labels that come and wanted to sign him London Records or something like that. He, he was with Sire Records. Sire, uh, yeah. I mean, we were signed. And uh, mm-hmm. early, early 90s. Uh, You're a font album. of information, Professor Ali. I have to stop you. You're a font of detailed information. Yeah, I love this. Sorry for this over Continue. <laughs> well, it's good when I can actually remember some of those details, but, you know, mm. uh, sometimes things do stick in your mind. And I was actually looking at that Rudder album, 1990 was the, the title of the album, and uh, that something had come up with uh, Seymour Stein, who was the founder of Sire Records. Mm. Uh, interestingly, I came across, this is a bit of a sidebar here, but I, I was doing some research on Kitchener, Mm-hmm. And, there you uh, go. I, I came across uh, an article in Billboard magazine uh, after Kitchener's passing. And one of the people that they interviewed was Seymour Stein from Sire Records. Wow. Who he had apparently been going down to Trinidad on a regular basis mm. uh, to hear people like Kitchener because he wanted to to engage with the the authenticity of the art form. And this is the irony that you have the head of. Uh, an independent label with major label ties. Mm. Who Blondie, is, Madonna. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, Madonna without Sire mm. uh, and Seal later on, about Seal? Whom, mm-hmm. whom I've written. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he is, he's, is in the mainstream, but he is actually looking at the authenticity of the art form mm. and trying to put some of that out there. Now, this may be the exception rather than the rule, especially as, uh, I would argue in more recent years, we've had more people who are more business oriented, who don't have the musical enthusiasm and background, mm. uh, than was the case, uh, 20, 30 years ago. Mm. But, uh, the point is that, uh, 
there is this tendency always to try to dilute and remold the music. And what perhaps we need to do for a change is let the music be and see who comes to the music. Mm. Always before that happens, there's this crossover impulse. And mm. it's, it, we can understand that. Uh, there's a need for success and uh, there's a need for money and there's a need to create uh, other foundations for a career, but maybe that's not the foundation or the way to build it. So it's, it's something to think about, but to come back to the streaming part of your question, uh, that has been more than a major change. It has been a, a tsunami of alteration in the business and mm. completely altered the landscape in conjunction with uh, social media. And I would argue has actually reduced the market impact for Caribbean artists. Wow. While on the one hand, streaming seems to facilitate a kind of democratization of the business, mm -hmm. uh, there are simply too many new releases in the marketplace. 100,000 a day, Spotify had said. 100,000 a day. <laughs> How do you... You can't surrender that, yeah. Mm. Under those conditions, it's, it's much more difficult to be heard uh, consistently and to sustain any kind of audience. The reality now is that only a few Caribbean acts will probably prosper outside of seasonal activity if their music has sufficient mainstream appeal. Mm. If. Mm. So, uh, again, coming, we're coming back to this point about not learning the commercial compromise lessons of mm. the past. So, and your suggestion is that we do have to modify either we modify our product or we let somebody modify it and not complain. Is that the suggestion? Well, ultimately I think what we need to do is maybe resist the modification process. Oh. And in other words, do not surrender the responsibility for modification <laughs> and, uh, and, and try to be creatively authentic This, this is not completely, uh, antithetical to being commercial. You can right. do the two, but that doesn't seem, there doesn't seem to be consciousness that there's an equation in which the two can be balanced. One of the things about the, in the streaming era, we just recently here in Trinidad, um, well, in technical in Tobago, actually, Bonoboy was here and he was doing a small Caribbean tour. He went Curacao, Dominica, and I think St. Martin, and he may have done an island before he came here. So, but Bonaboy has won the Global Music Performance Grammy, the last one they had. And I, we had on our podcast um, a member of the Academy at the time, Marlon Fuentes, and another member, Casey Phillips, who's a major producer of soca music. And they have been uh, they have been working on a thrust of get more Caribbean musicians into the Academy. But of course, utilizing that route as opposed to going to the world music route, which was dominated by Angeli Kijo. And I had made the point that As far as I'm understanding, if numbers are what we have to go by now, we don't have the advantage of the Dominicans and the Puerto Ricans because when they sing in Spanish, it's the whole of the Americas are listening to their music. If 80% of all the Spanish speakers in the world live in the Americas, they, they're good, right? The, the major um, English-speaking in, in English English country in our hemisphere is the USA, And George, what's his name? Donald Trump say America first. <laughs> so <laughs> you're on your own, right? But 
I, I, I keep coming back to this idea that that world music route, and I, I don't want to be uh, harping on this too long because there were a couple of labels that were specific to, to world music, right? I know Songlines Magazine, I think they had a, an, a, an associated label um, that, you know, found this, pardon me again? Say that again? And Putumayo, yes. And they, and, and Tumbancha, Kumbancha, I think is another one of those labels. And they basically wanted the real thing. And it was very niche, admittedly, but they had a certain kind of production quality. So they had beautiful photographs and, and, and liner notes and that kind of stuff. But you got your music out there. You talk about people coming in and finding the authentic. It, unfortunately, it's going to be small to begin with, right? And I, I'm just wondering if beyond music, because of course, music, musical people have told us the industry now, they look at everything. So it's how you look. If you're pretty, if you're not pretty, if you're sincere recently released an album earlier this year, if not late last year. And we have kind of consensus. I wasn't a fan of the record wholesale, but I understand what she did. And I'm happy for her. And she's done, she did a couple um major festivals and she definitely was on Jimmy Kimmel Live. But um if that model did not work for Shensia, who with my Trinidad eyes seems to have everything going for her, what what can happen? I, 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 what are we? I know I, I've asked the question a, a million and one times. I'm not going to ask it again, but there must be something to be said about how that information about evolving the business model has to come through. Has to come through to us. I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I really am lost now for words. Well, you know, uh, I know the album you're talking about, and I just felt that it was not uh, as musically compelling as it needed to be. Yeah, she wasn't herself. She could flow when she wanted to flow. She had to cut. Yeah, it was, it was sad, man. <laughs> but Chronics, Chronics' album, I thought, was a brilliant album. Brilliant, brilliant album. But he was up against Damien Marley, and Damien won the Grammy that particular year. I think it was so Stone Hill is the name of his record. But Chronics was, you know, touching on everything. He had a song that sounded like Coldplay. And it, at the same time, it had some pop elements. It was also a, just a very good album. I don't know what he's done since. Tell me. You're going to say well, something. you know, we we talked earlier about the continuing sales of the Legend album and mm. the fact that that's still the uh, top reggae top album, album. Mm. top 200. Mm. The shadow of Bob Marley still looms very largely over Caribbean music, not just reggae, but <sighs> Caribbean music. Wow. So... Mm. That, and unfortunately, the industry, when it looks at reggae, mm-hmm. is still looking for the next Bob Marley. And if your name happens to be Marley, then you're good. Probably a plus. Yeah, that Stephen has five Grammys. It's something like that. I mean, one of those Marley's. Hmm? Yeah, they, they have a lot of them. Um, as we're talking about crossovers, Omi just popped into my head. I just, I don't know why I didn't remember it earlier. Omi had a number one song in America with cheerleader. Which blew me away because we heard the original song from two years before, and it was it was a, it was an okay song. It wasn't it wasn't great. I didn't I wouldn't get out of my bed for it, but it was a good enough song. Do you know in your investigation what those producers look for? There was another we had a singer here called um, Fireball. He had a song called What You Want. It was a kind of novelty song because he had this operatic, he mimicked an operatic tenor, operatic voice singing the, um, the, the, the chorus and the hook as it was. And Bob Sinclair, a French DJ, remixed it and it was a big hit and he got, Bob Sinclair was signed to Universal France. But, um, there was some connection 
with the European market and that song. And in your investigation, what do these producers look for in a song when they're planning to do a cover? Well, I, I'm or a remix. making assumptions here, but I'm really thinking that the remix appeal lies in uh, electronic dance music mm. uh, commerciality. Isn't and, that grand? I mean, I know EDM was a hot thing for five years ago. Every soca song was sounding like an EDM song because there was a certain amount of traction when Bungie Garland took different anthology. I think he was bubbling in the top 100 with Major Lazer. But um, is it is it that good? That I don't popular? think we're beyond that point, uh, really. And... You know, you mentioned auto-tune in the (laughs) first part of our discussion, Mm. and that is like a plague, really, on the Mm. music scene. Uh, Because, again, you have artists from different genres using the same effects on their voice, so Mm. that ultimately uh, we may be able to detect certain rhythmic and stylistic differences, but to the average listener, this could be the same artist doing the same thing, or the same songwriters, or the same producers. And... Again, when we think of reggae breaking into the market, you have a level of creative distinctiveness there. Uh, Bob Marley didn't sound like Third World or Inner Circle or Bunny Whaler or Peter Tosh. Everyone had their own identity that mm-hmm. was immediately apparent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the uh, American and uh, English artists going down to Jamaica, yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's Keith Richards or Cat Stevens, he was there too. He wasn't mm-hmm. doing reggae, but you know, he was there. Paul Simon, mm-hmm. et cetera. Paul McCartney spent a lot of time there. They're tapping into again, that kind of authenticity. They're not going there looking for the commercial crossover. They will do the crossover because they can't do the authentic thing in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things I tried to map out in that white reggae paper. Uh, unfortunately, do they care about cultural appropriation? Sorry for cutting that sentence in. No, it's a very important point. It's a very important point. And uh, I, what you're going to find is that that, for a lot of artists, is a concept rather than uh, a cultural reality uh, about which they should be greatly concerned. Mm. There is, uh, you know, the commercial considerations usually... Uh, tower above any cultural considerations money money talks (laughs) money does talk and it is true and you know the the usual argument is that well you know i did this crossover thing but these other artists benefited from it well there are some holes in that argument Mm. what other roots reggae act has ever had the same kind of commercial success as bob marley it just hasn't happened none zero um, as we're thinking about some of these crossover acts, and you mentioned um, Steel Pulse, Aswad is another band that, that I think of. England, as you know, was the home of a large diaspora of Jamaicans, right? Trinidad diaspora wasn't so large there. But the Jamaican diaspora certainly, I understand, embraced Mali in the early 70s and built that whole community there in, in the UK. And a lot of UK artists developed i would say they were lovers rock i think came out of england it wasn't invented in jamaica that um what's his yes. name maxi priest and, and others right Dennis Bavel, Bajan. there you go so that that diaspora how important is it that well i'm thinking that the diaspora certainly is important in the english context but in the american context they've over since mali since well mali's dead over 40 years now and his music is approaching 50 years on a major label as it was 
the diaspora does is I think less important, certainly in America. Yes. So the the thing that is intriguing to me, I think this year's Grammy was won by this year's reggae Grammy was won by Soja. Um, basically a, a California band. And if you look at them, you say, okay, they're Californian kids. Say it again, Nigel, white boys. And there was a, a little bit of, um, murmur out of Jamaica. We were reading the Gleaner that they weren't happy about this idea of effectively foreigners interloping and taking the music. It's, it's one of those things that I worry about about Soka. If Justin Bieber sings a Soka song, we dead. Cause I, <laughs> or Omega Trainer has a, a hit Soka song. Cause I know she tried that thing with the Peanuts theme song. But she has a hit soccer song. That's it. Nobody wants to hear from us. We're dead. <laughs> right? So, because... <laughs> I've always argued that reggaeton had as much soccer in it as reggae, uh, rhythmically. Yeah. And that uh, the reggaeton artists have profited enormously. Big time. And some I, did, some, I remember famously, it was a couple of cases, a Bungie Garland song, a Super Blue song, were covered by Panamanian artists. And there was a problem because I don't think they went through the proper channels. So they just heard the song, put Spanish lyrics, put it out, perform it to massive crowds in their, in their cities, and no money is coming back to our copyright organization because when there, was no, there was no contract as it was. So the, the, the dominance, you talk about the shadow of Mali. I'm saying from the Caribbean, there are two, there are two trees. There's a the Mali tree. And then there's a Latin tree. I blame um, Ricky Martin at the Grammys. I think it was 1999. He sang um, Cup of Life. And the audience went crazy when he finished performing it. And six months later, Living La Vida Loca, everybody wanted to have a Spanish language album. And it hasn't stopped. (laughs) It hasn't stopped. Hasn't stopped. When did reggaeton start? You you know these things. You You know dates specifically. Well, you know, there was an interesting uh, lawsuit being proposed regarding copyright infringement of material from Steely and Cleavey by reggaeton artists. And I'm not sure what has become of that lawsuit. But uh, as a result of the suit, there was Mm -hmm. a lot of reference to the history of reggaeton and the way that uh, various Panamanian artists actually started yeah. uh, in the uh, early 1980s uh, to uh, achieve commercial success. El General, I believe, is the, mm-hmm. the key artist uh, who helped to cross it over into the uh, Hispanic market. And, of course, you know, the, the trend continued well beyond mm-hmm. that. But what we're looking at is what what initially becomes looked at as a, a compliment in terms of covering the genre and incorporating it turns into uh who in, in which in which the genre is actually taken over and the uh the interlopers as it were become recognized as uh, the pioneers of the genre oh, uh yeah. well, and yeah, mm-hmm. and history becomes rewritten because I'm sure before Belafonte, um, Lord Invader, Rum and Coca Cola, and this comedian came here, ripped up the song, gave it to the Andrews sisters. I mean, although he won in court, I understand that ASCAP went him literally right after and said, okay, we'll give you X amount of dollars and we want to buy the, the rights. And he took the money. So that as of today, the, his name is, um, Maury Amsterdam's name is still on Rum and Coca Cola. Um, I've also argued, and you talk about um, some of these Panamanian artists. There was, of course, a recent case, and I think you were part of that. Um, 
you'll have to correct me on this. The G, the, was it, were you part of the, the, no, you're sorry. You were part of the Marvin Gaye um, case. The yeah. case I'm thinking about is Jay-Z versus, uh, Jay, um, Timbaland, sorry, versus this Egyptian family who, uh, the songwriter wrote this piece of music. And, um, Jay-Z. Said again? I think Jay-Z was involved in it as well. Well, Jay-Z sang the song, right? But, um, the, the but Egyptian wrote this song and they, and the Timbaland sampled it. And the, and when it went to, to the lower court, they were claiming moral rights because I think the song was about drugs or something like that. And the judge in the, the law court said, this is America. We only recognize economic rights. We don't recognize moral rights. And it got me thinking because we had a, we had a symposium here talking about intellectual property in Trinidad. And I said, if America sets up their laws not to acknowledge what we have as laws and we're supposed to be part of this universal IFPI, CSAC, all these kind of things, we are, we are, we are, we are the underdog all the way through this whole kind of thing. What is going to happen to us? Because they they've claimed, and I, I know the the case went a little askew because they were basically asking for half of Jay Z's earnings, and that was the end of that. But if the court is saying that we do not recognize moral rights because it's not written into our law, how do we benefit? I mean, admittedly, economic rights is what we are challenging and what we are asking for, but they don't even recognize in additional parts of our cases. So you could then take my song, convert it, and call it a parody. And sell a billion copies and say the whole like, okay, well, that I, there's nothing. Our copyright law acknowledges parody as free of speech. <laughs> How does this work? Well, well, this is where, uh, we see that political independence does not translate into intellectual property independence. Mm-hmm. And ultimately we're always going to be up against the dominance of the larger markets, their organizations their legal frameworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Marvin Gaye estate and the blurred lines case, which I mm-hmm. obviously won't go into, but, no. mm-hmm. uh, the, the point is that, uh, there was uh, in some circles, uh, this contrast made between the recycling that occurs in reggae culture mm-hmm. versus, uh, the norm in Western culture of having to pay for every time every you come. Single- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's a cultural gap there that is not about to be bridged. We have rhythms just like the Jamaicans. So it's one bed of music and five singers sing literally on top of the same piece of music, right? And, of course, the producer is now the winner because he says, well, I'm, I'm controlling the mojo. You just come with the lyrics and you get a, may or may not get a 50-50 split on it, right? But there's this, as you rightly said, the, the idea of copyright being, you know, being able to use and benefit from original work and, and uh, up to a certain point in time almost becomes redundant. It becomes redundant now because I, it's, it's one of those things that I keep asking myself, are we, and, and I'm sorry about this, eh? I'm professor, professor, because I'm, I'm keep harping on this idea that certainly for the Trinidad government, we've got it wrong. We are, we are in a phase where we have a, a government owned company that is funding the development of our music industry by, you know, finding artists, young artists, developing them, pushing them to the rigors of the business, the financing, and of course, the the whole image of the music. And they had a record at the end of the the particular period and just released a record, just Project Spotlight. They just released it a couple of days ago. And um, looking to synchronize those songs. They're pushing it as songwriters. I don't think they have been bold enough to suggest that these artists will be superstars. But the, some of the songs are not bad. I'm not going to lie to you. There was one particular song last year. The young artist developed a whole album. It's really a nice album. But um, 
the the idea and, and it kind of to me runs parallel to that whole Rihanna, that Rihanna model, as I call it, we're fine. But now instead of Rihanna the performance, is Rihanna the songwriter, if you understand what I'm saying. But yes. I, I think that there has to be something and, and, and it's not necessarily the job of professors such as you at universities, but there has to be other voices suggesting an, a revised model. Because let me ask you a question. Have you ever been approached by any Caribbean government to advise on the development of the music industry? Never. Ah, boy. This podcast goes everywhere in the Caribbean, <laughs> including into the circles of policymakers. So you have a man who's a, a professor emeritus in the Department of Recording Production, who's widely cited and written and spoken on the production of music and the production of recorded music, with reference to Caribbean music, as well as, as I said, Hendrix and Prince and others. And you have never been approached or never been asked to that advise. Wow, uh, we are going to lose out. We have to do business, Professor. <laughs> well, there are definite questions to be asked about the Caribbean commitment, the extent of it to mm. cultural preservation and archiving and planning for the future. Mm. And if there isn't... Uh, an effort to tap into the knowledge base of people who are connected to the industry, mm-hmm. uh, then th- there will be problems. And I'm thinking what I'm really getting at here is that there needs to be a more holistic approach to considering what the music industry is. This podcast is part of it. We, we pride ourselves in that, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, when people think of the music industry, they should be including things like the podcasts and the mm-hmm. articles from academics uh, that that really speak to what's happening in terms of change and development and history and mm-hmm. how that's influencing where things have gone and are still going. And still going. So, uh, you know, if we don't have that kind of holistic perspective, that's difficult. As we say in China, crap will smoke your pipe. Um, well, we're, we're nearing the end of our conversation. And just one thing I want to, to bring into our conversation as we talk about, you know, almost legacy artists, Marley's 40 years, as I said, past and the, the legend album, which was a compilation album, albums, if I remember, it's multiple CDs and certainly um, songs of freedom, which is another box set that he had yes. has, has legs and it's still selling as, as an item to be sold. Um, I had asked you a question prior about the example because you had written an article about unboxing the box set. Yes. And the idea of having these kind of mementos, I call them almost artifacts that a generation understands because we were born and grew up in an era when you owned a cassette, owned a record, owned a CD. Of course, a new generation only understands streaming, but they will, they too will get older. And if I understand it's a t- the statistics. Vinyl production is increasing. So Taylor Swift's album, a lot of her albums that she recently sold are on vinyl because the production of vinyl seems to be a, a popular f- um, thing. I mean, young people are finding vinyl as a new thing, but of course with Taylor and, and, and Adele and Bieber as opposed to going backwards. But, um, that idea of the using the box set as a, as an artifact, I know it's much more expensive to produce, right? Yes. But um, how how do you do you have an opinion about that? Can let's talk about that in terms of Caribbean music. If that could be a, a a model to be used to get the music some legs, as it was. Yes, absolutely. For a start, when it, it's done properly, uh, the box set can provide tremendous historical value and perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, this is achieved not only through the recordings selected for the compilations. 
but also through the annotated liner notes, if there are any. And uh, just as an aside, I remembered buying a uh, some Kitchener collection in a series. I won't call the name uh, of the label, but uh, I can were, call it. But you go ahead. <laughs> there were no liner notes. There was mm. nothing there. Just the music, and I was shocked and appalled. But anyway, uh, the, the fact is that the liner notes can provide this social, political, and creative context so that you understand the recordings and even the genre in, in a, a much richer way. Uh, you get uh, the opportunity with the box set for audiovisual documentation that will not only refresh the memory of the person who lived through the era of the music, but will provide insight for the younger audiences who are less familiar or not familiar at all with the history. So, um, and as you pointed out, it's somewhat revealing that the best examples of Caribbean music box sets have not emerged from within the region. As I said, I know it's an expensive undertaking, so it's a kind of thing that will take money, which I think is one of those kind of one of the things that I we kind of decided is very important to develop our music industry here in the Caribbean. And the other thing we talk about having that kind of unique identity and recognizing it and certainly not surrendering to automatically cross over or to be crossovered by, but to allow our authentic selves to be part and parcel of what we're selling here in the Caribbean. Professor Aline, we are going to talk again because that, that, that whole tangent of, of recognizing icons in music. You talk about Kitchener. We know about the, the Bob Marley example. They need to have box sets on, on, um, Jimmy Cliff. We need to have box sets on Prince Buster. We need to have box sets on Sparrow. Sparrow has a very tense kind of thing. Um, and I know Eddie Grant has, had been buying some copyrights and some rights for artists and Calypso artists and that kind of thing. And he had done some compilation records, but box sets as part of a kind of grander, grander object that gets the eyes and ears of media. I think is something that could and should happen. But Absolutely. Nobody, I don't know if anybody's listening to Nigel Campbell, but say what? I hope they do listen to Mike Allen when he says this, because you said absolutely. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, I, I participated in the Smithsonian anthology of hip hop and rap that was mm-hmm. uh, released last year, a nine CD box set and wrote some of the liner notes. I mm-hmm. mean, there were lots of people involved in it, but I was happy to have been asked to be involved in that. Everybody except uh, Caribbean governments, eh? We have to talk about that. <laughs> well, you know, that's a long conversation there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but certainly, you know, the, the fact is that what I'm trying to say is that I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is here and mm. I'm actually involved in that kind of process rather than just theoretically talking about the value of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the, it, it's, a, it's an attempt to try to, to demonstrate some engagement with, with that level of the business, mm-hmm. not just uh, from the outside looking in, but that, to actually be involved in getting one's hands dirty, so to speak, in making those things happen. So, it's it's up to the movers and shakers to uh, make decisions about how they can move things forward and who can help to make it happen. You know, one of the things about the music business and the way that it's changed is that you've lost a lot of A&R people like Chris Blackwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have those kinds of figures in the business anymore. Now you can say a lot of things about his approaches and some of the different consequences. And I've said a lot in my writings too. But mm-hmm. the fact is that he undeniably was able to develop and identify talent and you need people who have not only the eyes and ears, but the resources to yeah. make that happen. 
There you go. There you go. Well, Professor Ali and Mike, you're good friends now. I want to thank you for this conversation. And you won't be a stranger to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. And I hope we speak again. Okay? Thanks, man. Wonderful. Well, Laura, there it is. Um, long-winded, but all the same, I think very interesting because you was able to guide us through what the West, and I keep saying what the West, but really and truly what international markets look for when they're listening to Caribbean music and how kind of semi-difficult it is to kind of break into these markets and things. But it was all interesting, all the same. Very and- interesting, very informative. And what I actually love, Nigel, is that we are able to show our listeners mm-hmm. that we have this type of academic talent in the region yes. that who, who you know, is plugged into what's happening internationally mm-hmm. and can write about okay. study and write and analyze mm-hmm. about things going on in the music industry. We are certainly, you know, as Caribbean people, we are out there. And definitely. this interview definitely showed that. So I'm very, very upset that I missed this interview. I yes. missed speaking to, mm-hmm. to, to your guest Professor, today. Professor Allen, yes. Professor, yes, but it was certainly an enjoyable conversation. Really, really. Yes, much. you all are both nerds. Yeah, oh, totally. God, well, <laughs> you can hear it, right? But it was it was interesting all the same, and I'm really happy we did it. And and something that you and I, Laura, have been speaking about, and I kind of hinted it to him, that, you know, we'd like to have, continue having these kind of conversations. I think we may have mentioned it in our interview, our recent interview with Donovan Watkins, the idea of having not just a talk shop, but kind of expanding what this podcast could do by having these kind of leading experts in a kind of conference situation where we can yes. have conversations about the importance of Caribbean music and the importance of what we are doing and the importance of what the industry needs to do and recognize. 2023. We have to put it out there. That's what it is. So ladies, yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, that's it for tonight's episode of Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. I am Nigel Campbell. I am Laura Dorridge Phillips. We'll catch you guys again. Bye. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Music Matters Caribbean. And if you want to listen to our previous podcasts and keep up with our new material, check out the website podcast.iradio.tt or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Radio Public, and more of your favorite podcast platforms.